Well, let's open our Bibles now together to Esther chapter 5. We are uh, going to be uh, continuing on in this, this uh, great book, this, this, this book of Esther that is so unique in all of biblical literature. We are continuing on, picking up where we left off last week. That has us in verse 9 of chapter 5. So as you are able, once more, let's stand together in honor of the word of the Lord. Again, we don't do this as an empty ritual. We do this as a, as a physical reminder to ourselves of, of the authority and the place of honor of God's word. Esther chapter 5, beginning in verse 9, hear now the word of the Lord. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither, neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh, and Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, and all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him beyond the other officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Queen Esther, let no one but me come to the king, come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow I'm invited by her together with the king. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. And his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman. And he had the gallows made. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, we rejoice in this good gift from you, our God, that through your word we come to know you, that we are transformed by your spirit working through your word into the likeness of our Savior. I pray, God, that you would accomplish all of your good purposes through your word this morning, even calling that which is dead to life, even opening blind eyes. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. All right, the timer didn't start on the sermon until right now, because we've got a lot to get through. I don't want to feel that pressure. So, John Wayne Gacy is a name that some of you may have heard, and if you have heard it, you're wondering why his name is being uttered here this morning. John Wayne Gacy was a family man, he was a father, he was a husband, he was heavily involved in his local community, he did a lot of volunteer work, he would dress as a clown for children at their parties and events, he even met First Lady Rosalind Carter while her husband was president and posed for pictures with her, he had a charismatic personality, he was very likable, his neighbors and his friends loved him. But he had a secret life. He was actually a prolific serial killer. If you know his name, that's why you know his name. Not for any of those other things. He murdered at least 33 young men and boys. And hid many of their bodies in his own house. In the crawl space. Right under the floorboards of his living room. Were stacks of bodies. There's a singer named Sufjan Stevens wrote a song about him. I don't know why, but he did. And the final words of this song, it's actually a haunting, beautiful song. And the final words are this. In my best behavior, I'm really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I have hid. The final words of that song turn the whole song on its head and they confront us with the reality that the, if the secrets of our hearts were to be fully Revealed and made known, we would find that apart from the grace of God, we are no better than the worst sinners we can think of. None of us are free from the urgency of self-examination to pray along with David that the Holy Spirit of God would search me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. As Martin Luther said, the whole of Christian life is to be one of repentance. It's for this reason. 
If we were to examine our own hearts, if they were to be laid bare, we would see that really we're not better than anyone else. And so then when we see sin in the life of another person, even when we see sin in the life of someone in Scripture, whatever discernment that God grants to us, the very first thing we ought to do with it is to turn the mirror of discernment on ourselves and examine our own hearts before the Lord. Our our call is not to look at our brother or sister and name their sin without any self-examination to see where my heart looks like that. It's not to look back through the corridors of time and judge the actions and the motives of the people we saw in Scripture. Our first job is to examine ourselves, to examine and identify the idols of our own heart. That is the first purpose of discernment. And it's only then, with that log removed from our own eye, that we can see clearly the speck in our brother's eye. We can clearly diagnose our brother or our sister who is in sin or in error. That we can clearly see to diagnose the sin and the wickedness and the idolatry in the world around us. That, that we can rightly identify the sin that's going on in biblical accounts. It's only with that log removed from our own eye. And so today as we look at the sin of Haman. Haman, this enemy of God. Haman, this enemy of God's people. Haman, whose sin, yes, was great. He is an exceedingly wicked man. But as we look at him and as we see his sin today, we need to look under the floorboards of our own hearts and pray that God in his kindness and in his mercy would reveal the idols that are hidden there so that we can turn from them in repentance. And so to that end, I hope that this sermon is very practical for us today. It will probably step on our toes a little bit or a lot a bit. But we need to know this. Whenever the Holy Spirit of God is sort of putting his finger into our chest, telling us that we are guilty, it is actually his kindness to us. It's actually his love and his mercy to us. It is a function of his love. God is treating us like a father. And we, his beloved children. That's what's happening when the Holy Spirit of God brings Strong conviction to us. And so we ought to embrace and welcome the conviction of the Holy Spirit because it means that we belong to God. It means that God loves us. And so friends, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but run to the cross of Christ. As we have come to Esther, to this moment in Esther, we have come to the moment of crisis. This wicked Haman has succeeded in manipulating King Ahasuerus into sending out a decree to exterminate all the Jews across the whole empire, which is really in the whole world. So Esther, the queen, has agreed to risk her life by going into the king's inner court, even though he hasn't summoned her, even though he hasn't called for her in 30 days, To go commit this crime of showing up before the king unbidden, this this crime with a punishment of death, even for the queen. And so she goes, and what what she encounters when she stands before her husband is that she finds favor with him. He holds out his golden scepter, he spares her life, and he tells her, what is it that you want? I will grant it, whatever it is. Esther then invites the king and Haman to a feast. I've got a feast prepared for you right now. You and Haman come to the feast. They gladly accept. They immediately go to the feast. They eat. They drink wine. Ahasuerus is feeling good. And he again asks Esther, what do you want? I will, I will do it. Whatever it is. Instead of a straightforward re- request, Esther has this plan that she is carrying out. So we read in verse Seven, Esther answered, my wish and my request is that if I have found favor in the sight of the king, if it pleases the king to grant my wish, fulfill my request. Let the king and Haman come to the feast. I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. That brings us to our where we begin picking up this story today in verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against 
Mordecai. So, so Haman now is on top of the world. He has been promoted. He has been made um, second in command over all of the Persian Empire. He is now on his way out of a feast that the queen has prepared with him in mind just for the, the king and Haman. He's on top of the world. We know Haman is an arrogant man, but this has multiplied it exponentially. An honored guest of just the queen and just the king and just me. And I have obviously impressed them so much. The queen is so impressed with me that she needs to do this again tomorrow. She needs to do another one. She needs to have have more Haman time. They can't get enough of me. I'm a huge deal. He's walking out of there on cloud nine. It says joyful and glad of heart. But then that next word, but. Haman walks out of the palace exuberantly happy and he immediately sees Mordecai in God's providence who he hates. Mordecai who disrespects him. Mordecai who won't show him honor. Mordecai who won't bow down to him when everyone else bows down to him. And wouldn't you know it, Haman, the big deal, comes walking out of the palace and one more time, as everyone bows down, there stands Mordecai, unwilling to bow. And Haman's mood is instantly transformed. He is furious. He wants more than anything to be seen as a big deal. He, he craves, he needs honor. He needs the approval and the respect of others. I think, I think even more than being significant, Haman wants to be seen as significant. And so when Mordecai dishonors him, it shakes him to the core. His, his emotional life is being dictated by the idol of his pride. When that idol is fed, Haman's happy. The queen invites me to a feast with just her and the king. Very happy. She invites me to do the same thing again tomorrow. Exuberantly happy. That idol is being fed. But when that idol is challenged, he is instantly angry. And so his, his joy here and his anger are both just outward expressions of his heart's idolatry. And friends, the truth is one way to... to To identify the idols of our hearts is to look at the highs and lows that we experience emotionally. What makes me exuberantly happy? What is it that instantly changes my mood and brings me down? Now, our our emotions are a good gift from God. He created us with them. But there is such a thing as a sin of being overly emotional, of being ruled by our emotions. Haman is just such a one. Haman here is going to make a huge deal out of something he should have shrugged off. When Haman came out of that palace and he saw Mordecai standing there looking him in the eyes while everyone else bowed, Haman should have said, I'm rich, I'm powerful. Who cares about this? Nobody. He's not going to bring me down today. Instead, he goes from being full of joy to to bitter rage. And we do similar things all the time, don't we? We we let things that should be small things, things we we should be able to shrug off, things that should fall under that category of love covers a multitude of sins, and we obsess over them. We let them bother us. We let them get under our skin. We won't let it go. We can't let it go. We're very easily irritated. We're very easily frustrated. We're very easily offended and often, isn't it, over the smallest, pettiest things. We absolutely hate being inconvenienced in any way. And when we are, we take it very personally. Why was this server taking so long to get me a refill on my drink? Somehow it's a personal attack from this poor overworked person against us. Why isn't the temperature of the church building exactly the way I want it? They're trying to stick it to me. That's what they're trying to do. Meanwhile, you think you're freezing to death and somebody across the room is sweating and thinks they're going to melt and die. It just might be that it's not possible to get a temperature everyone's happy with, and we have an old building and old equipment, and we shouldn't all take it so personally. But I'm not going to talk about that. (laughs) 
We get upset over the pettiest things and we take it so personally and so seriously. But friends, even when God brings real life trials into our life, I'm not talking about slow people on the road. I'm not talking about bad service in a restaurant or a temperature that you're not crazy about one direction or the other in the room you're in. Real life trials, when, when they come, we ought to trust God's sovereignty in it. If that's true of real trials, it's sure true of the petty things. God brings trials into our lives for our good. God has a plan for every frustration, for every inconvenience. None of it is wasted. God intends to grow our patience, our faithfulness, our steadfastness. How are we commanded in Scripture to to respond to trials, real live trials, not just annoyances? But if it's true of trials, you better believe it's true of annoyances. How are we to respond? God calls us to rejoice. To rejoice when trials come our way. Not because we enjoy the trial, but because we believe God's promise of the sure fruit that will come from that trial if we are his. James chapter 1 verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. We are called to joy In all things, even in our trials, because God has promised his people that our testing will have a sure product. It will produce steadfastness. And this this perseverance that, that these trials produce in us, they also have a sure result, and that is our sanctification. We are being perfected, made Christ like. That's why we rejoice in our trials, not in the events themselves. But what do we typically do when we are frustrated? We complain. We lose our patience. We start talking to other people about it. In some ways, I think that we are far better with major trials than we are with small annoyances. We sin more grievously with our small annoyances because we just don't think God's word needs to be brought to bear on those. And so we complain. It's crazy that we do that. It's crazy that we, that we do this because God's promises are so amazing. In light of these promises, it's insane that we get so irritated so easily. It's, it's, like, it's like traveling on your way. You, you are being given a $1 billion inheritance, tax-free cash money. And on the way to pick up the cash, you get a flat tire one block away and you're furious. You're fuming. Life is worthless to me. Nothing matters anymore because I got a flat tire on this last block. That makes no sense, does it? What's a flat tire compared to a billion dollars? What's walking a block compared to a billion dollars? What's this car to somebody who's got a billion dollars? You can buy a hundred more of them and you won't even feel it. You're a billionaire. Anything but pure joy in that moment is complete insanity. Well, we got something better. We got something better than a billion dollars. Far better. And here we see Haman go from on top of the world to the absolute depths of anger and despair. If we're honest with ourselves, we can relate. We do this. We let other people, we let annoyances, we let trials rob the joy that we have. Joy that's far better than Haman's. We have that only joy that comes from God to his people. That true joy that God gives to his people that no one else has. But instead of trusting in God and rejoicing in our trials because we know this to be true, we fall into despair. We need to be constantly reminded of God's faithfulness. That's the remedy. Constantly reminded of God's goodness. Constantly reminded that God never fails. That his plans for us are good. He's the only foundation we have. Wednesday night, Wednesday night, as these massive storms rolled through, and I think many of you were doing what we were doing. You're kind of following along on your phone. Okay, now a tornado's been sighted over here. Some of you were going to your basements because they're not gross and spider-infested like ours. So we were just hunkered down in our bedroom. We're reminded in those moments that we're actually quite small. We're actually quite fragile 
We are not in control. We can, it turns out quite easily, be tossed around like a leaf in the wind. But God is a mountain. God is unshakable. He is a rock that will never move. He is perfectly steadfast. He never changes. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so our hope in him, brothers and sisters, is not misplaced. That should produce in us contentment. A settled joy that can't be taken from us by life's trials and even by life's annoyances. Another thing to note here in verse 9 is simply this. If you stand for something good, people will hate you. Now, now just to be clear. If you're being rude, if you're being a jerk to people, there's nothing noble about people getting upset with you about that. Sometimes people do, I stand for the truth, and, you know, and people get mad, and you're like, well, because you talk like a snotty fourth grader to people, and it's rude. That's why they're mad. In fact, if you do that, you're being arrogant, and you're making Christians look bad. Our tone matters. Our demeanor matters. We are to boldly stand for the truth and proclaim the truth. Yes, but the Bible tells us how we are to do that, and that is in love. In that famous passage where we get the word apologetics from, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter says this, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. It's not just that we stand for the truth. It's not just that we speak the truth. It also matters how we stand and speak for the truth. But here's the reality. No matter how gracious you are, you can do it with all the gentleness and respect in the world. If you stand for truth, there will be times that people get angry with you. They threaten you. They yell at you. They call you names. They slander you. They accuse you of all kinds of hate and evil. If you're Brent Buckley, they make t-shirts with your name on it and they make little videos. I, I ask Brent what, it, what it's like to stand out in front of an abortion clinic and if everybody's going to be nice to you because you're a loving Christian. No, the world hates the truth. They'll hate you because of what you stand for. Haman hates Mordecai. And the reason he hates Mordecai is because Mordecai is standing. Mordecai won't pay homage to him. For this reason, he wants to kill all the Jews. If Mordecai had just bowed down to Haman... The Jews wouldn't even be in this predicament at all. They, they've got a date set where they're all going to be exterminated. Complete genocide. But if Mordecai had just bowed down to Haman, stopped being so stubborn, stopped being so bullheaded, none of this would be happening. How many, how many Jews just wanted Mordecai to bow down? How many told him, just stop being so stubborn, stop causing trouble, just comply? Well, the truth is, we don't always need to comply just because someone in authority is telling us to do something. I hope we've learned that over the last couple years. If we didn't know it before, we ought to know it now. There are different spheres of authority that God has ordained. There is, there is a self-government over ourselves and over our own bodies and over our own lives. There is family government, there is church government, and then there is civil government. These are different spheres of authority that God has established, each with his own purpose, each designed by God. Sometimes, though, one of these spheres of authority will try to step into the other one and call the shots. Try to usurp the authority of another. They will try to fill the role that God has ordained for another authority. For example, this is completely hypothetical. This would never happen. Imagine there was a virus spread worldwide. And the government said it's so bad. We're going to have to step in here and tell you what to do. You need to comply. We need you for 14 days. It's just 14 days. We can do this. We've got to slow the spread. We've got to flatten out the curve. 
We need you to comply and social distance. They told us, they tell us it would save millions of lives. In fact, if you don't do it, you are putting everyone at risk personally. Grandma's going to die. It's going to be your fault. So we comply. We trust them. They're doing their jobs. It's within their sphere of authority to look out for the public health and in extreme circumstances to ask the, the public to do certain things for a certain amount of time with certain measurable outcomes. And we don't want to be responsible for anybody's death. And so we comply. Let's say, though, a few weeks go by. We realize this isn't quite what they made it out to be. It's not what they said it was, and it's not what they're saying it is. But the government still says, and that this 14 days has long since passed, no, 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 you still can't. You still must comply. Only essential places can open up, and by the way, the church is not one of those. Liquor stores can be open. You can still go to the gas station and buy your lottery tickets, but the Church of Jesus Christ is not allowed to gather. But at that point, friends, the government has overstepped its authority and we should not comply. Which is why, while our state was still shut down by mandate of the governor and churches were ordered to remain locked, we made the decision that we were done with that. And that we were going to gather again for corporate worship. And also that the government wasn't going to get to tell us how to do it. What it looked like, what we had to wear when we come, and what we had to hang on our walls. And how close we could stand to one another. That's outside their sphere of authority. Their authority does not extend into the church of Jesus Christ. And so we chose not to comply. We did it respectfully. Um, I I actually talked to to officials in the area and told them, hey, I'm going to be standing in that pulpit Sunday. Wanted to give you a heads up. And we resumed meeting. Now, for the record, this is not patting ourselves on the back. In hindsight, we should never have closed. I regret that we closed for even one Sunday. We shouldn't have. So I'm not saying, boy, look at us. We're perfect and everybody else is dumb. But I will say this. We've learned from that experience. And the next time the government tells us the church is not essential, I'll be standing right here the next Sunday morning. Those doors will be unlocked. And the church of Jesus Christ, those who, who want and will come, will be here. That, that, we, we've learned from that. Just because someone in authority says you've got to do something, it doesn't mean you've got to do it. All right, we've made it through one verse. So we're doing great. Uh, let's press on. Verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. He sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches and the number of his sons and all the promotions with which the king had honored him. How he'd advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. And then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one come uh, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared, and tomorrow I am invited by her together with the king. So Haman sees Mordecai. He's filled with rage. He restrains himself, which just means he didn't kill Mordecai on the spot. But he's so angry. He's so offended. His feelings are so hurt. And he gathers his friends, and he gathers his wife for some support. And he tells them how important he is. What a big deal he is. All his riches, all of his sons, all the promotions the king gave him. How, how even the queen has now recognized just how big a deal I am. Just how great I really am. How she's, she's hosted a feast for me and I was delightful at that feast, by the way. So delightful that she's doing it again tomorrow. Because she just can't get enough of me. He feels important. He feels special. He has no idea he's being played. And he is being played. He should probably have been questioning this. Why has this never happened before? And now two days in a row, I'm being invited. Why did Esther do something she's never done before and no other queen has done, come bursting into the king's presence against the law, putting her life on the line because she has some request, but she won't say what it is, but now she wants to have a feast with just me there. And now she wants to do it again tomorrow. Haman should be going, what is, she gonna, what is going on? What is she going to ask for? 
But all he can think about is how important he is. He can't get past that. Oh, I'm such a big deal. Again, we see the idolatry of his heart. Where does he run to for his security? Where does he run to for his comfort, his wealth, his money, his comfort, his security, his sons? We'll see later he has 10 sons. His name, his enduring legacy, his position, his promotions, his power. These are the things he looks to in order to define himself. And none of these things in and of themselves are bad. Money isn't evil. Money's necessary for everything. Family is certainly not evil. Family is a glorious gift. We just read that this morning in our, in our psalm reading. Even power is not evil if we steward it wisely, but these good things become bad things. In fact, they become idols when they take precedence over God, when we find our identity in them, when we find our security in them. And if we are honest with ourselves, we're not so different. We're not so different from Haman. We want to be respected. We want to be honored. We want and need other people's approval. We want to be the very best At whatever it is that we are doing, we, like Haman, love the glory that comes from other people. And we, like Haman, make ourselves the very center of our own universe. We all wrestle with the idol of pride. If you think you don't, Just consider what you do every time you see a picture that you know you are in somewhere. You've been at a family gathering and they made a picture of the whole gathered group and you get your hands on that picture and what's the very first thing you do? Where am I? How do I look? Do I look good? Is it flattering? Is it unflattering? We're the center of our own universe. Now sometimes our our dealing with pride looks like this. We think we're great. We really think we're the best. Sometimes it looks like what we would call low self-esteem. We think we're the worst. But really, we think we're the best. And other people just don't know it. It's all pride, either way. Soaring self-esteem and ego, low self-esteem. It's all a product of pride. It's the same old sin. But friends, we have something so much better. We have so much better than the praise of men, than the respect of men, than the cover that comes from riches or a name. And that's this. God has made us his own. Christian, that's what you've got. God has made you his own. His word says we can cast all of our anxieties on him because he cares for us. We don't have to run to these idols, these weak and powerful Powerless idols. He wants your burdens. He wants your pains because he is your loving, gracious father. We, we have rest in him alone because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He is gracious and kind to us. He knows our frailty. He knows that we are but dust. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The king of all the universe bids us to come into his presence, into his very throne room anytime we want. He welcomes us to make our requests known to him all day long. And he knows us far better than we know ourselves and He loves us and he has chosen us and we are his beloved children. We belong to him and he will never turn us away. This Christian is where our identity is found. That's who we are. This is where our security is found, not in the vain idols that we run after. As we see Haman in his moment of crisis, emotional, existential crisis, because one man didn't bow down to him, he runs to his idols, his, his riches, his family name, his lineage, his sons, his powerful position. 
All these things that he boasts in are going to be taken away from him. His position of honor will be stripped from him and given to Mordecai. He's not going to live long enough to enjoy his wealth. His ten sons are all going to be killed. Our our idols are powerless to keep their promises. There's no true security to be found in them. They, They are completely subservient before God. And even our pleasure in them is a fickle thing. And look at verse 13. Yet it's worth nothing to me. It's worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. In the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman. And he had the gallows made. So Haman says, all of my vast wealth, all of my, my, my ten sons, and in Persian culture, sons, that's a huge deal. You got ten sons, that is a major, major source of status and wealth for you. His position of authority in the government, he says, he says all of this is of no use to me. Whenever I see Mordecai. And so his wife and his friends have some advice for him. And as we have seen repeatedly in the book of Esther, it's terrible advice. Build a gallows in the backyard. Again, in Persian culture, they didn't hang people from the neck. They impaled them. This is building a giant structure for an impaling pole. It says, make it 50 cubits high. That's 75 feet. So here's their advice to him. This Mordecai who you hate. Build something that's taller than anything in all of Susa. It's a good 25 feet taller than the palace would have been. Build the biggest, tallest thing that every single eye can see. This impaling pole with a a platform and a structure around it. Hang Mordecai on that. Kill him on that. And so this thing would have been a spectacle. Everyone would see it. And everyone would know this is what happens if you disrespect the great Haman. And Haman thinks, now this is worthy of of my stature. This is a punishment worthy. He likes the idea. And so he has it built that night. And in the morning, Haman's going to go to the king. And he's going to ask the king to let him hang Mordecai on it. That's where we'll leave off in our story today. But let me, let me bring, bring some application to bear on, on these things that we have seen. Because again, apart from the grace of God, none of us are better than Haman. It wouldn't do us any good to just look back on this passage and look at this story and go, he really was bad. And, we, and we've just got some feeling of our moral superiority over him. Even as those who are in Christ, we are still on this journey of sanctification. It is a lifelong process of being conformed into Christ's image. And none of us are going to reach sinless perfection on this earth. All all of us must be constantly committed to the work of sanctification. And essential to the work of sanctification is putting our sin to death. It's mortifying sin. And so just a couple of practical steps to mortify sin at the end of this. As we've looked at this passage in the great sin of Haman. First is this. We always have to start with the gospel. It's the gracious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. First, we need to see our sins for what they are. That's where the gospel begins. Our our sins aren't just we could have done better. I could have tried hard. I made a bad decision. Of their rebellion, treasonous rebellion against God, the creator, the judge of the universe. They are idolatry. They are a forgetting of God and a chasing after other gods. And we need to remind ourselves that Christ was beaten, that Christ was hung on a cross because of our sin to purchase our redemption. His blood is the only thing that can atone for our sin. And it's more than enough. 
It washes us white as snow. He removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. We need to first be reminded of God's love for us in Christ. Ephesians 1 says that that before the foundation of the world, he chose us in him. Christian, think about that. Before God created the world, before, before God said, let there be light, he knew you. He loved you. He chose you. This is our God. And the putting of sin to death in the life of the Christian begins with this knowledge. This is who God is. This is what God has done. This is what my sin is. Next then we need to realize that the only way we can put our sin to death is through the power of the Holy Spirit. We are in our own strength helpless to overcome sin. We can't just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. It can't be done, but Christian, here's the thing. We're not alone. We're powerless alone, but we are not alone. He will give to us the strength we need to overcome our sin. He has promised to do it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, second part of verse 13 says, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Sanctification is a long, hard, slow process. Is it not? It takes work. It takes effort. Now when it comes to salvation, that's the work of God alone. We don't help. We can't help. It's Christ alone. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. But in sanctification, we have to work. We don't do this work on our own. It it too is a gift. We can only do this work through the power of the Holy Spirit, but we do not not drift into righteousness. We, We don't coast into holiness. We don't slide into to breaking the power of sin in our life. It takes a fight. So I just want to give you a couple practical ways to fight. This morning, as we look at the sin of Haman, as we examine our own lives and the Holy Spirit points his finger at us and says, here's an idol. Here's where you're guilty. First is this, confess your sin to a mature Christian brother or sister. Friends, here's the reality. That those sins that remain between you and the Lord only, I can make you this assurance. Those are the same sins you will still be dealing with 10 years from now. Sin, when it's in the dark, festers and grows. So drag it into the light. Kill it. Now, you don't need to to publicly proclaim your sin in front of the whole church or do anything like that. James chapter 5 verse 16 says, Therefore confess your sin one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The first step in seeing the grip of sin loosened in your life is to confess it. Of course to the Lord, but you've been doing that. Confess it to a brother or a sister who you trust. It is an incredibly powerful thing to bring your sins into the light. I can tell you from personal experience, both in my own life and in the lives of those I've had the privilege of walking with as a Christian over these many years, it's often the case that the simple act of bringing your sin into the light and confessing it to another believer breaks its power. That all of a sudden these things that you have been desiring and unable to free yourself from, you find you don't even want them anymore. You don't even feel that way anymore. Bring your sin to light. Confess it to another brother or sister who you trust. Second is seek counsel then from wise, mature Christians in the church. Let them advise you. Let them pray for you. And this should go without saying if you're going to seek counsel, but it doesn't. 
actually listen to what they tell you and put it into practice. Don't, don't just seek out their counsel and then they tell you good and wise and godly counsel and you're like, yeah, that sounds difficult. I don't think I'll do that. Take practical steps to avoid temptation. Whatever those areas in your life are that you, you repeatedly fall into those patterns of sin, take practical steps to put it to death. Don't assume that you're going to get zapped with some spiritual lightning bolt that's going to take care of it for you. As Jesus would say, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Next is memorize scripture. In particular, scripture that is, is specific to your sin. And when you're being tempted, recite it. Rehearse it. Psalm 119 verse 11. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. There is power in the living word of God. Applied. You, you need to, first of all, be preaching the gospel to yourself over and over and over again, Christian. And, and when I say you, I mean all of us. No matter where we're at on this, this walk of sanctification. Some of you, it feels like you're like, you're pretty close. You'll never be fully, completely perfect in this life. But I look at some of you and I'm like, you're, pretty, you're on the edge. Others of us are kind of a mess. All of us, though, need to be rehearsing the gospel over and over. And particularly if you have areas of sin that are patterns in your life that you just go back to over and over and over again. Intentionally memorize scripture that speaks to those things. Intentionally memorize the scripture that calls them what they are. Next, then take advantage of the means of grace. Commit yourself to daily, systematic Bible reading. Such a simple thing we all know, and yet such power. Come here every Sunday morning. Don't miss, consider it a big deal to miss. Sing with gusto the great truths of God. Participate in the Lord's Supper. Come for prayer and scripture reading on Wednesday nights. It's one of the most encouraging hours in my whole life. Wednesday night, we read the scripture out loud and we pray. Come to Sunday school. Come to the second service when we have it. Spend time with other members of the church. These kind of things, do you ever spend time around other Christians and other people and you leave and you're like... Oh, that's so much better. That's so much better than whatever else I would have been doing during this time. I'm so encouraged. I want to serve the Lord. I'm invigorated. That's, that's what these things do. That's how God's designed us. Read good books. I'd be happy to recommend good books. Listen to good podcasts. We live in an amazing time. You can hear the best preachers in the whole world right now, whenever you want because of the media we've got. It's not the guys on TV, by the way. Listen to great and meaty hymns and songs. These are, these are all just practical things. But they're powerful. And pray. Pray. Invest time in it. Be specific in your prayer. Asking God to help you put this sin to death. Many... Many, I, I, I think if we're honest with yourself, have spent far more time with your sin than you have in prayer asking God to mortify your sin. Flip that. Reverse that. A Christian, run to him in prayer. Run to him because he's good. Run to him because he truly cares for you. Run to him because only he can give you peace in the storm. His word says that he rewards those who diligently seek him. We don't seek him in vain. We don't just seek him because it's the right thing to do. Of course it is the right thing to do. 
We seek him because he really does reward us. We seek him because his promise is true. That if we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. And it's the Holy Spirit of God who gives us the strength and ability to do even these practical things. It is the the work of the Holy Spirit to lift us up to Christ. To lift our eyes to behold him. To exalt him in our hearts. To fill us with the desire to worship. To fill us with the desire to pray. To fill us with the desire to live righteously. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to bring about good fruit from the slow work of sanctification. And he will do it. He has promised to do it. If we accept this gift from God, then our hearts will become more and more and more filled with gratitude for the gift and the grace that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his gospel. In his life sinlessly on our behalf where we have failed. In his death as our substitute on the cross. Bearing our condemnation. Bearing our guilt. Bearing the wrath that we deserve for our sin. In his glorious resurrection on our behalf. The first fruits of the resurrection. In his continued intercession on our behalf. We will be filled with gratitude. We will be filled with joy. Nothing comes close to what we have in Christ. And so as we look at the wickedness of men like Haman, we lift up the floorboards of our own hearts and we see there our desperate need for Christ. And as we see Haman dead in sin, totally unrepentant, we lift our eyes and behold Christ, this sinless, crucified, risen Lord. We remind ourselves that in him, friends, we have received grace from God. Not because of anything good in us, but because of his deep love for us. And it is by his grace alone that we are able to live a life that pleases God. A life that glorifies God. A life that testifies to the goodness of God. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your living word. Lord, even as we look at at this man, this sinful man, Haman, we pray that by your spirit, you would search us and know us, reveal to us sin in our hearts. Lord, for, for many of us, as we consider these matters on the forefront of our mind is sin, our sin. Lord, for others... And even for those of us that that are so well aware of our own sin, we have other sins lurking and hiding and we need you to search our hearts and reveal these hidden things in us that we can turn from them. Pray God that you would give us faith to trust in you. Or that you would cause us to, to repent, to turn from sin, to renounce it, to put it to death. And to live for you. I pray that you would help us to take advantage of these means of grace that you have given to us as good gifts to keep us and to strengthen us. I pray, Lord, as a, as a church, that you would cause us to walk in faithfulness, not only to you, but to one another as we walk alongside one another. Pray, God, that you would be glorified in us and through us. We rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, amen.